This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. We have seen mm -hmm. that poor character and high-ranking public officials can break our political culture. And we've mm. seen that abundantly. Character is destiny. And so both of those things, so I'm not telling somebody, hey, if there's somebody you admire personally, but they completely disagree with you on all these very important policies, vote for them anyway. No, I'm saying demand mm -hmm. better from your party. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues facing our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, another indictment of former President Donald Trump, wildfires in Maui, and that guy's not real, a viral meltdown, the conspiracy surrounding it, and what it tells us about the moment we're living in and how Christians might better love people on their very worst days. Stay with us. So joining me today is CT's Nicole Martin. Nicole, welcome back. Thanks, Mike. And joining us is New York Times columnist David French. David, welcome back to The Bulletin. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. So a few weeks ago, David, we had your co-host from the Advisory Opinions podcast on here to talk about the second round of federal indictments against Donald Trump. That was the third in total. We now have the fourth indictment. It's the second state-level indictment coming out of Georgia against the former president. This one included 19 co-defendants, 41 felony counts, covering a whole range of issues. Generally speaking, the indictment alleges that the Trump campaign operated as a criminal enterprise. It's being prosecuted as a RICO case, and maybe you can explain a little of that to us in just a minute. But this included things like lying to state officials, creating a fake slate of electors. Two allegations that seemed particularly egregious to me involved harassment of election officials and a voting system breach where Trump campaign officials illegally accessed voting equipment in January of 2021. So, David, why don't we start sort of big picture? How does the strength of this indictment stack up against the other three that have come down so far? Yeah, I would put it as 1A is the documents indictment because it's about the cleanest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> 1B is Georgia. And I can explain why, even though it's a much more complicated case, it might be ultimately more dangerous for Trump, even than the documents indictment. Mm -hmm. And then a bit behind it is the January 6th indictment from Jack Smith. And I can explain why that's a little bit behind the Georgia indictment. And then decisively bringing up the rear is the Manhattan DA's indictment around the Stormy Daniels hush money payments. That's a case I believe never should have been brought. The other three, I believe, are absolutely cases that should have been brought. Tell us a little bit about you know the fact that this is being prosecuted as a RICO case. For people who aren't familiar, surely they've heard the word, you've heard it in movies, if you watch The Sopranos. What is RICO and why is this being prosecuted as a RICO case? So essentially what a RICO statute is designed to do, it's designed to capture how gangs or mobs actually act and interact. So for example, let's suppose that you and Nicole were part of a criminal gang together. Now, Nicole might commit some crimes where it appears that only Nicole is doing the crime, and you might commit some separate crimes. Now, you can be prosecuted for those separate crimes, but at the same time with a racketeering charge, what you, the prosecutors can say is, wait a minute, 
yeah, they're both guilty of separate crimes, but those separate crimes were part of an overall corrupt organization and plan. And by alleging and charging this sort of overall corrupt organization and plan, essentially what you do is you ratchet up the legal stakes. So this was the kind of thing that was designed to combat organized crime, because if you were just prosecuting sort of the individual crimes, a lot of times you're playing whack-a-mole and you were actually not quite capturing what was really happening when you're interacting with a criminal syndicate or a criminal enterprise. And so RICO was designed to deal with criminal syndicates, with criminal enterprises. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, hold on. We're talking about the Trump campaign. We're not talking about like La Cosa Nostra or the Crips or the Bloods here. How can you charge racketeering of participants in a political campaign? Or how can you charge racketeering if you're talking about an election challenge? Well, the answer then goes to Georgia law. So Georgia law, its RICO statutes are actually a lot broader than the federal statutes. And the Georgia RICO statutes mm. encompass and include these criminal prohibitions on lying to public officials on matters under their jurisdiction. And so under Georgia RICO statutes, if you, Mike, and Nicole both lied to Georgia public officials as part of a common enterprise or a common plan, then that falls under Georgia RICO. Now, that's one thing that really distinguishes this Georgia case is that racketeering element. It's a mistake to focus too much on racketeering because the other thing that really makes this indictment different is that the individual Georgia state criminal statutes are very straightforward compared to the federal criminal statutes that Jack Smith is prosecuting. They're a lot mm. simpler to prove. So just to take one contrast, one of the key statutes is being prosecuted. I've already mentioned it. It criminalizes lying to state officials in matters related to their jurisdiction. So really all you have to prove is you willfully lied about a material fact. Material is a sort of a legal term for important to a state official and the conduct of their official business under their jurisdiction. If you prove that, that's a crime, but it's not enough to prove that and it, for it to be a crime in the Jack Smith indictment. You have to connect the lie, even if you prove that a lie occurred, to something larger, bigger, an intentional effort to injure voting rights or to defraud the United States or to obstruct an official proceeding. So there's that extra step in the federal prosecution that doesn't exist in the Georgia prosecution. So that makes it simpler as a matter of proof before you get to the more complicated RICO statute, if all that makes sense. As I'm processing what this latest indictment means, I've actually heard people say the system is just ganging up on Trump. This is just yet another way for them to try and tear him down. But it unearths something more critical, it seems. This particular indictment isn't just about Trump lying. It's not just another thing on Trump. It seems to me this is the core attack on our democracy. So what do we say to people who are like, oh, everyone's just ganging up on Trump and the justice system is against him and he just needs a break? One of the things that I try to do is get people to focus on the facts of the case. So sort of the right-wing infotainment media is very good at not talking about the underlying facts of the case. <laughs> So they'll say, yeah, no president's yeah. ever been indicted before, or they'll say, Fonnie Willis is a Democrat, or that Joe Biden is a Democrat and he's prosecuting his political opponent, and they don't dive into the facts of the case. 
And so this is one thing that I try to do when I'm having conversations with people sort of offline in real life is I, I try to dive into the facts of the case and to say, wait a minute, let's look at what actually occurred here. Let's look at what the law actually yeah. is. And then when you read some of these false factual statements that were made to, say, the Secretary of State or were made to the legislature, they're wild. Like this wasn't just mm. Donald Trump lying. These lies were incandescently dumb. This stuff was facially mm. absurd that was being said to these state mm. officials. And then when you add to that the incredible harassment directed at Georgia election officials, yeah. if anyone was ganged yeah. up on, it was these Georgia election officials who were just doing public service, counting ballots. And some of them actually had people show up at their house. I mean, had live in fear mm. to this day just from doing their job. And so a lot of what ends up happening is in a lot of the discussion about this, we skip over the actual facts of the mm -hmm. case. You know, and when you dive into mm -hmm. some of these facts, for example, you know, one of the first facts in the case is that Trump was given a draft of a speech before the election to claim fraud, mm. okay? This was a plan that was hatched even before the election. Other things that you see is they filed a legal complaint where documents have been unearthed to say that they knew that key parts of the legal complaint were false when they filed it. So you can just go through mm. fact after fact after fact. And one of the questions and responses, if a Democrat did that, would you believe they should be prosecuted? And the answer is going to be mm -hmm. absolutely yes. And then the other thing is, well, why has no president been prosecuted before? No president has done anything like this. And, and there have been corrupt right. presidents that we've had, no question about it, but no president has done anything like this, not even close. And so if you have unprecedented actions by the president, it requires unprecedented legal accountability. This fascinated me. There's an Associated mm -hmm. Press poll that dropped this week, approval ratings related to Trump and various candidates. So his approval rating right now is at 35%. 69% of respondents don't want him to run this year. 53% said that yeah. if he was the mm -hmm. nominee, they definitely would not support him. Another 11% on top of that mm -hmm. said that they probably wouldn't support him. So 64% total. This was the number that actually really surprised mm -hmm. me. Between people who said they somewhat to strongly approve the Justice Department indictments, 53%, more than half, supported the indictments. Mm -hmm. Only 29% somewhat to strongly disapprove, which I thought that number was low. I, I would have expected it to be a much higher disapproval number on this. There's other interesting things in there. 75% of the country doesn't want Joe Biden to run. 54% yeah. of the country said they probably or definitely wouldn't vote for him either. So that makes, I think that it's 117% of the country doesn't want either of them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, my math is wow. goofy, but you get the point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So given where we are, doesn't it seem like at some point something's going to happen and the dam is going to break and things are going to change quickly, even if we don't see it? like on the horizon, doesn't it feel like this is unsustainable? So I would say the conditions are ripe 
for disruptive change, but the institutional mm -hmm. momentum is all pushing against it. So for example, you look at the Democrats and large numbers of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to run again. They're worried about his age. Joe Biden does not have sort of like mm -hmm. that strong, dedicated, zealous following that Barack Obama had. He doesn't have mm -hmm. that kind of support. And there are a lot of very legitimate questions about whether a man his age should seek a second term. I mean, this is not an easy job here. And anyone who says that there's been no deterioration in his condition is just gaslighting you. It's obvious that there has been deterioration. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's not like the Democrats can just say, well, don't run, Joe. It's up to him. Mm -hmm. And once an incumbent president says, I'm running for re-election, it is virtually impossible yeah. to stop them. And so the Democrats are trapped mm -hmm. by one man's will, Joe Biden's. Similarly, the Republicans are trapped by the combination of one man's will, Donald Trump, and his incredibly zealous, always Trump MAGA supporters, which give him a floor of support. And so what you have is a Republican Party with the will of one man and his very dedicated following that is just obviously heading to destructive path. And then you have the Democratic Party with the will of one man and all of the structural advantages that an incumbent president have, especially in their own party's primary, going heading in that direction. And you're just waiting for one of these two men to sort of say, for the good of the country, I don't mm -hmm. need four more years in the White House. And I think it's harder for Biden to wrap his mind around that. And I don't think that enters Trump's mind at all, because I think Trump is sitting there thinking, for mm -hmm. the good of me, I need four years in the White House. Mm -hmm. I think right. Biden mm -hmm. is saying, I mm -hmm. beat Trump. You know, why are you telling me to step aside? Yeah. I'm the one who beat him. So he has a yep. story he can tell himself that's pretty compelling. But at the same time, we just have the rest of America, aside from the very zealous followers is saying this cannot be, this should not be. You know, if you're gonna have an alien visitor from outer space saying, wait, this is the most powerful and strategically important country in the entire world. And in all probability, the election is gonna come down to two people who putting everything else aside are just flat out too old for this job. It's really remarkable. And I was in Ukraine in May. And one thing that struck me was the contrast between the Ukrainian politicians I interacted with and much of America's senior leadership. Ukrainian politicians mm. were younger. They didn't speak in crisp talking points all the time. Yeah. They yeah. were very direct. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, they're in an extreme situation. They don't have time for the nonsense that we have in American politics. Mm -hmm. But this contrast mm -hmm. was really remarkable. The conditions yeah. are ripe for disruptive change, but the institutional momentum for it is just absent. It also hits home when you talk to younger voters, voters who are, you know, that maybe this is their first election coming up where they get to vote or, you know, people in their 20s. They are so frustrated by the bifurcation of this election that they are deciding I'm not going to vote. Now, that's scary to me. I feel like, at least from my vantage point, people thought and died so right. that I could vote. I mean, this is a right of being an American that you get to vote. So don't allow the confusion of the current state to cause you to cancel the election. But that's where we are. Younger people are so bothered by what's happening on the Trump-Biden scale that they feel like, I don't have a choice. So what do we tell them? How do we encourage them to continue to stay the course and to use their rights, even when it seems like every choice they make is going to be wrong? Yeah, it's a great question. The way I think of this is, 
my vote is a civic responsibility. Now that does not mean, and I have said this mm -hmm. many times, that mm -hmm. I have a civic responsibility to vote for one of the two major party candidates. We should not fall into that trap. And falling into that trap is mm. one of the things that's put us in the very position that we're in now. So I have always urged a two-part test for candidates. And you have to satisfy both prongs before you're gonna get my vote. One is, of course, mm -hmm. I want somebody who more broadly shares my political values, policy ideas than the other opponent. So I want somebody who's gonna share my foreign policy ideas. Not perfectly, nobody ever agrees you know, with any of us perfectly, but generally shares my policy priorities but also they have to have character commensurate with the office that they seek. So I have a tougher character mm, test, the I'll higher the office. Mm -hmm, I'm less concerned, mm -hmm. say, about a dog catcher's private life than I am about whether they can catch dogs. But we have seen mm -hmm. that poor character and high-ranking public officials can break our political culture. And we've mm. seen that abundantly. Character is destiny. And so both of those things. So I'm not telling somebody, hey, if there's somebody you admire personally, but they completely disagree with you on all these very important policies, vote for them anyway. No, I'm saying demand mm. better from your party and then tell your party, mm -hmm. whatever party you lean towards or whatever, look, if you don't deliver, I'm out. I do not owe you my vote. You have to mm. earn it. And here are the conditions mm -hmm. under which you earn my vote. You have to have high character and high commitment to the policies that I agree with. And too many people mm -hmm. act like they're victims of this process. Well, I yes. guess I have mm -hmm. to go along with whatever was provided me. That's right. No, you don't. Mm -hmm. You actually don't. Right. And I think that's a mm -hmm. liberating way of viewing the world. And it actually is, I think, good for the soul in some important ways because it removes you from this obligation to sort of be a lawyer for your team, which tempts you into rationalizing things that shouldn't be rationalized, into excusing things that you shouldn't excuse. So having that view of you have to earn my vote, I don't owe you my vote, I think really is a liberating mindset. The sort of sub thought that comes along with that is... I'm not responsible if my party loses because they put up bad candidates, right? Because I think what I heard constantly in 2016 and 2020 was people saying, well, if we don't support Donald Trump, the Republicans are going to lose, and then the Democrats are going to come in and they're going to do X, Y, Z. And to me, I think the argument really kind of speaks for itself, like sort of the moral rot that's come along with not just the four years of the Trump presidency, but what are we at now? Eight years of his dominating yeah. American politics. That is something we are responsible for, for having voted for him and platformed him and, and bringing him along. And, and let me just add one thing mm -hmm. to this. Well, if Trump doesn't win, then we get four years of all of these bad things. Actually, no. Mm -hmm. Actually, you can oppose the things you dislike during those four years, and you can stop many mm -hmm. of them. A motivated opposition can stop many of them. So we always do this really apocalyptic thing where we say, well, if Joe Biden wins, then every policy that I don't like that you see from Joe Biden, or if Donald Trump wins and every policy you don't like you see from Donald Trump will happen. No, no, no. If you look at modern presidents, they generally get one or two or three big things and that's it. Mm -hmm. Because actually what ends mm -hmm. up happening is as soon as somebody moves into the Oval Office, it's not like the opposition just goes away. They go, oh, well, you won, you got your four mm -hmm. years, just go to town. That's not the way this works. The checks and balances are working the whole time. 
And so you're not actually acquiescing in any platform mm -hmm. if you say Donald Trump has a character that's too low for me to vote for. That's not acquiescing to the Democrats because you can oppose the things you don't like the Democrats propose all four years. And you can yeah. generally stop it, yep. generally win, actually, just because of the way the system is set up. All right. Well, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So joining Nicole and I now is CT's Morgan Lee. Morgan is one of our global editors and lives in Honolulu. Morgan, welcome to The Bulletin. Hey, Nicole, and hey, Mike. So it's been more than a week since the wildfire swept through West Maui. The last count that I read was that at least 99 people are confirmed dead. That number is expected to continue to rise. And the damage assessments are remarkable. 2,700 structures exposed, 2,200 destroyed, 2,000 acres burned. 86% of the buildings exposed to the fire were classified as residential. I wonder if you can tell us with a very upfront perspective what's happening on the ground in Hawaii right now. So in the immediate aftermath, at least on Oahu, there were multiple donation drives organized. People love Costco here and they made their pilgrimages to Costco and bought everything from bottled water to blankets to clothes to food. And there were different donation sites. So we had some folks who were flying food and stuff over. Other people were sticking it in a boat and sending it over directly, which is how a number of people in the area were able to access stuff potentially a little bit faster it was because they didn't have to go through some of the roads which have been closed at various times and so forth. On the actual island itself, also been doing a lot of other donation sites. I've seen churches organize multiple donation drives. What usually happens in my experience with disasters is within the first 24 hours, people are like, we want donations. And then now we've reached the period where people are saying, we want these donations. And so there's much more marked specificity because there's a much greater sense of what people actually need during that time. And there's a lot of people, especially churches who are providing meals, whether they're providing meals specifically for first responders or providing meals for anyone in the community who needs them. There's a couple churches that I saw that are sheltering people from the mm. fires. Not all churches are doing that, but I saw a couple that are doing that as well. And I think a lot of the efforts at this moment that I have seen from churches at least center around meeting people's physical needs. I know that Samaritan's mm. Purse did send out some of, the, they have like 
basically like grief counselors that they dispatch to different places. I haven't seen a lot of churches offer that so far, but my hope is that we'll see more churches in that space mm-hmm. because obviously everyone just experienced significant amounts of trauma. Yeah, it's been interesting to see the way the crisis has kind of highlighted economic disparity in Hawaii. People have talked about it in terms of like, this is exposing the world to the two Hawaiis. In the same time, at the same airports, at the same bus stops, you have residents who are trying to get away from the fire and tourists who are trying to get to their resort destinations. How have you seen that dynamic unfolding on the islands? So this is something that really came up during COVID because Hawaii was in a very similar situation to a lot of places that have a tourist economy around the world where they felt it economically, but at the same time, there was also a sense of relief and a sense of places that had kind of been mentally blocked off as places for tourists were now open and accessible to people who live there, to locals themselves. Again, it's not like these are places that are not open to locals on a general basis, but I think anyone who lives in a great tourist area has kind of cordoned off places oftentimes in their mind that they see as for other people and what spots are for them. And for many people, I think tourists are kind of seen as unnecessary evil, at least at this critical mass, right? Because of the number of people on the islands at any given time that are tourists. And so there's been a lot of tension in Maui in the past couple days over what to do about tourists. So we've seen a number of high profile folks who are connected to the island and also a number of activists who announced that Maui is closed, that it is Mm. extremely inappropriate to have your vacation at this time, Mm. that, you know, every resource on the island needs to be centering and provided first towards the people that are have been affected in whatever capacity towards this. And then we've also seen some local business leaders and so forth say, we can't do COVID all over again. Mm -hmm. If our areas were not affected by the fires themselves, then it's, you know, not fair for us to be losing all of this business that we're relying on right now and that we're counting on to get. And so other parts of the island should remain open to people who come. But I I do think that there's like a very fundamental frustration with just the overall dependence, right? I don't think that Mm -hmm. if anyone had their way, they would be choosing to have tourists. It's it's more like it's an economic reality. I just read this thing today that said four out of every $5 spent on Maui is the result of tourism, right? And so Mm. the island really just doesn't have a diversified economy in any way. And then I say that it's, it's, it's quite true for in Oahu, where I live, at least they have government jobs that are here, more hospital and medical jobs by comparison. I would not say those are like the industry, but there's other different positions that people can work. But some of the neighbor islands really, really, really rely on tourism in a way that they're having to ask extremely painful questions right now about opening Maui to tourism after there's just been this absolutely horrifying event. And I think, you know, part of the challenge of what's happened with the wildfires is just the way that it triggers the trauma, not just for people on the island, but around, I would say around the world, just seeing videos of people jumping into the ocean to save their lives. Somebody told me the other day that it triggered an interesting connection to 9-11 for them. Mm. Seeing people jump into the ocean was similar to seeing people jump out of buildings to save their lives. Mm. And I just wonder how you mentioned you don't see a lot of churches so far 
doing a lot for the mental health aspect. But how do you manage through this kind of triggering of trauma and just the reality that so much has been lost for so many people and there's very little we can do right now? Right. I, I think that is like always the tension when it comes to these things, right? There's this intense amount of energy. Just tell me what I need to do. Yeah. want to help out in these places. And especially for people like me who live in Hawaii, but don't necessarily have a direct connection. I'll say mm-hmm. one very practical thing that I think everyone who's a Christian truly, truly, truly needs to think of doing. So right now on my Instagram, I have a list of like a Google Doc. And on the Google Doc is names of families, a little story about each family, and then a Venmo handle. And Mm. there's far too many families for everyone to be sending money in almost every instance. Or you could argue that it might be a better use of your money to only send to one family. But people actually share a little bit about themselves in there. I mean, we have a responsibility to pray. And you can actually Mm -hmm. pray much more specifically for people by name and go through this type of list. And you don't have to say, I'm going to go and pray for the entire list in one night. You can go day by day and do this type of thing, keeping in mind the real stories right now. You know, not everyone is going to have time to talk to the media or go and record a TikTok sharing more details about this. But I do think it's really powerful to know the names of people who are directly affected, to know the members of their family, to kind of know exactly the way that the fire has touched them. So I'm really grateful for people who have done these types of like crowdsourced documents that allow you to do that. And again, if you feel led, which I hope as a Christian, you do feel led to reach out in some way to these families directly. There are ways to financially help them. So I do think that, you know, some of the tools that we have available now allow us to pray with more specificity and with more compassion and care than we might otherwise. And then there might be other opportunities to follow up directly with people in the future as a result of the way that you've been praying for them. It makes me think, I mean, just hearing both of those thoughts, like it, it makes me think in terms of what does it mean to be the gathered church, right? Mm -hmm. And what is the point of a church that gathers if a church can't gather and mourn and having hope and having the hope of the resurrection? I mean, the beauty of the resurrection is, I think it was Owen who says, you know, the, the resurrection shines brightest when it pierces the shadow of the cross. In an encounter with this kind of loss, I can't imagine the devastation. The photos are brutal to look at. I think being theologically mm-hmm. glib at a time like this is a real danger for the church, particularly if we haven't done a good job at pastorally doing the spiritual formation work of helping people learn to grieve and learn to cry Mm -hmm. out to God in sadness and anger and frustration at that kind of loss. Mm -hmm. One thing that in general, the local culture does very well here is that I've gathered at various different events. Some of them have been kind of like cultural spaces or hula festivals, and there is often communal singing at them. There's a couple different songs that I would say if you grow up here, you just kind of know. So one of them might be the doxology in Hawaiian. There's a couple other songs that just talk about the connection that you have to Hawaii. There's another one that I wrote about in the newsletter this week called The Queen's Prayer. And this is written by Queen Liliokalani after she and her government were overthrown about 130, 40 years ago. Anyway, I'm saying this to say that there are these different songs that people know. And I've personally found that one of the best ways to be with each other during these times is to sing together. And I Mm -hmm. think that that churches know how to sing together all the time. And my hope is that churches that already know how to sing together on Sundays are able to create spaces for people, you know, regardless of what their relationship to the church is to come and sing and to feel other people's presence, to feel beauty, which often happens, I think, through song and through music and to just feel a sense of like, we're not alone. I can hear it in Mm -hmm. other people's voices. 
you know, we don't have to necessarily be doing something at this very moment to still nevertheless provide comfort to each other. Morgan, thank you for your coverage of this. We'll link to your piece in our show notes and we will be praying for the people of Hawaii. Thanks for joining us on the bulletin. Great to see you guys. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So David French is joining us again. Welcome back, David. Well, thanks for continuing to have me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So summer air travel has been harrowing for lots of people this summer. David, Nicole, have you all experienced this? I know I have rerouting, canceled flights, all of that. Oh, I have sworn off Southwest oh. Airlines. I just don't do it anymore. Yeah. I, maybe I'm having bad luck, but I can't seem to get on a Southwest flight without an hour delay. So consider me an American loyalist. They've been better to me. There you go. And same, it's just, I've noticed it's not just more travel. There's a lot more angst, a lot more tension. When a flight is delayed, there used to be a time where people would just kind of like walk away, go find a seat. Now there's like a collective kind of, oh, and you Mm -hmm. can start to hear the grumblings. When I was on a flight once and they didn't have snacks, you would have thought. (laughs) that the the flight attendants said, you're all going to have to lose your seats. I mean, the rumbling around me of this, I paid this money. There's just a, <laughs> a heightened sense of anxiety, a heightened sense of tension, a heightened sense Man. of entitlement. I paid my money. I better get everything I can do. I mean, this is, it, it, we're living in different times. Well, air travel certainly made one woman particularly crazy this summer. She became internet famous as Crazy Plane Lady. Her name is Tiffany Gomez. She is a Texas marketing executive who boarded an American Airlines flight from Dallas to Orlando last July and, shall we say, had a bad experience. She became convinced that her seatmate wasn't real and that the plane was in some sort of imminent danger and insisted on being allowed to leave The video of her expletive-filled rant went viral, and the response was kind of what you expect from one of these viral videos. Lots of your sort of standard ridicule, people laughing at it, people calling her a Karen. There were were two responses I thought were pretty interesting. One was lots of men on the internet immediately (laughs) fell in love with her and were proposing marriage and wanting to rescue her from the shapeshifter in the seat next to her. Mm. And then lots of people believed her and believed that she had seen something. There's a whole sort of conspiracy thread about shapeshifters. We won't get into the weeds on all of that, but (laughs) those of you willing to brave red it can find it all, I'm sure, if you want to. Well, the story blazed back up this week with an apology video Gomez posted online. She made no excuses for her behavior. And of course, the response was not that the story went away quietly after she apologized. Now people are insisting that this is actually not Tiffany Gomez that we're seeing on this video. This is oh a gosh. shapeshifter. No. This is an imposter. Where is the real oh Tiffany goodness. Gomez? So David, as someone who I know has a fondness for sci-fi, but also for sort of conspiracies in general, not a fondness for them, but the same, I think, morbid curiosity yeah. that, that I do. Let me ask you this one. What do you make of shapeshifters? Are they real? Are they among us? Well, I have a confession to make. <laughs> <laughs> 
Man, your fans that online. Yeah. Certain, certain group of your fans online. Yeah, I'm glad we're videoing this because oh, I'm about man. to transform. Um, <laughs> no, the, you know, That's look, great. conspiracies have always been a part of American life. There were people I knew when I was a kid who were conspiracy theorists, without question. UFOs, which are real, by the way. No, UFOs, <laughs> Kennedy assassination, moon landing, like all of these conspiracy theories. But here's the thing that's different. And I don't know if this has been y'all's experience. I'd be curious. Every person that I knew who was like a conspiracy theorist, it was like a side hobby. It was like a quirk. Yeah. You know, in yeah. some ways it would make someone endearing. Don't get Jim started about the Kennedy conspiracy. But it didn't right. define them, you know, and it wasn't who they were. It was sort of an aspect. They had these weird thoughts or these weird ideas, but you know, there's this kind of fun thing online. What's the conspiracy theory that you think is true? And you know, mm -hmm. that can be kind of fun to sort of explore, like what's an odd thing that you think might actually be real. Yeah. But what I've noticed is that the conspiracies are now starting to fundamentally define people and mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. it is starting to warp and shape their lives down to the core of their being. And some of this might be related to the secularization of Americans and that sort of eternity-shaped hole in people's hearts. And by the way, when I say secularization, I don't just mean de-churching, because there's a lot of secularization in our churches, okay? And so what I'm seeing is that people are beginning to adopt conspiracies as a sense of purpose and meaning. And in some ways, the wilder and darker the conspiracy, the greater the sense of purpose and meaning. And so that's what I'm seeing, and that's what's scary to me. Because I've always had conversations with people who've had wild thoughts about this or that part of history, but rarely, and not until the last few years, have I seen people be so overtaken, sort of down to their core. And part of this is also related, quite frankly, to the hyper-partisan polarization because we're now teaching people mm -hmm. that their political opponents aren't just wrong, but they're sort of evil and corrupt to their very soul. And yeah. I know at CT, you guys have seen this. I'm on Twitter a lot less than I used to be. It's 80-20 threads versus Twitter now. <laughs> but I clicked on Twitter to mm -hmm. share that wonderful Francis Collins piece that Christianity Today ran in tribute to Tim Keller. And the meltdown mm -hmm. that I saw online at oh, the very right. idea that anyone would publish Francis Collins or even pretend that he was a Christian was mm. mind-blowing to me. And this is where people who yeah. have so defined themselves by their partisan animosities and so defined themselves by saying, everyone who disagrees with me isn't just wrong, but sort of evil to their core, to the point where mm -hmm. you're willing to believe almost anything you hear about somebody. It's mm -hmm. really actually remarkable. Yeah. And could it be that we also see these conspiracy theories not just playing out individually and internally, but they're playing out against yes. other people? That's the scary part. I mean, if you hoard water in a basement in your house because you are concerned that one day we're going to have, you know, another COVID. I mean, if you do that, that's something you do in your own space, in your own house. And sometimes with conspiracy theories, you kind of imagine the Hollywood style that you'll go in somebody's house and you'll find a room and they've got all of the newspaper clippings and all of the, you know, red thread connecting things like Carrie that. Matheson. Right, the, exactly yeah, right. Homeland. I mean, in every, I mean, I'm, all the movies are running through my mind, but you kind of think, 
That's a conspiracy theorist, someone who in the dark keeps their thing to themselves. What we see in this case was a conspiracy theory that played out against other people that involved assaulting other people. And by the way, she was never tested for intoxication. She was never tested. You know, did you combine things? The newest thing lately is, you know, because of plain anxiety, you take your little whatever antidepressant or or anti-anxiety thing, and then you have alcohol on top of it. Was there anyone who tested? Or a couple of THC gummies. Right, 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 exactly. Exactly. But why don't we question the sanity of people as it relates to their treatment of other people? Isn't that the Christian responsibility? Not just your theory, but how does your theory cause you to treat other people? And if you're not treating them in a way that is honorable and acceptable to God, now we've got a bigger problem. Well, you've nailed a really important dynamic that is going on here. It's almost as if a lot of Christians have said, If someone is my political opponent, then the fruit of the Mm -hmm. spirit become optional. If I've labeled someone as evil, if I've labeled someone as demonic, some of the language that's often used to describe Mm -hmm. political opponents now, if I've labeled them in that way, Mm -hmm. then they get the Jesus of the whip, right? Because that's always (laughs) the justification. That's That's always the rationalization. So, you know, I'm supposed to be Christ-like and Christ went after the money changers in the temple with a whip, right? And so you Mm -hmm. get that all the time. I'm not saying that there aren't some times where decisive action is necessary, but Jesus has a few advantages over us when he was calling out the Pharisees. He can look into men's hearts, Mm -hmm. right? He can read you like you're an open book, right? And we cannot. Mm -hmm. We don't. And Mm -hmm. so when we are admonished again and again, love your enemies, bless those who persecute you, the fruit of the Spirit are not a set of theological or ideological propositions, but a set of personal virtues. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And that is acknowledging our fallenness. We can't see into hearts like Jesus. And so how do we even know if we're right sometimes? I mean, the conspiracy theory mindset, Mm -hmm. these folks who are believing these conspiracy theories have this burning conviction that they figured out some sort of secret knowledge, and they're just wrong. And they believe that that deep knowledge gives them license, and that's just wrong. One of the things that fascinates me about it in terms of how it's changed is that if you look at, for instance, like during the 1980s in the midst of the satanic panic, You had this whole thread of this secret cabal of Satanists. It was kind of tied back to these ideas that were more popular decades before that around the Illuminati and all of this. Mm -hmm. This, you know, there's fascinating stuff you can read on all of this. What's interesting about it, though, what's different, it seems to me, is that in the 1980s, when you read the theories that surrounded that moral panic, it was behind our enemy is another enemy who's truly evil and worshiping the devil and sacrificing children and all of this. You fast forward and starting around the time of like the Pizzagate conspiracies, it's not there's a secret cabal that's hidden from the world. No, it's Mm -hmm. all of them. They're all doing Mm -hmm. these things. When it's attached that broadly, Mm -hmm. it kind of makes you just despair of how the polarization could ever be resolved. Well, and this gets to the full circle back to the Trump situation. So One of the reasons why people are completely unwilling to believe assertions against Donald Trump is they have been primed to believe that everyone who opposes Donald Trump is evil and that Donald Trump Mm -hmm. is a final bulwark against evil. So if your political Mm -hmm. opponents are evil, Mm -hmm. are you going to listen to them about anything? And then and then people say, well, you know, 
maybe if some longtime Republicans come out against Trump. Well, that's been done, right? I was a longtime Republican. <laughs> In the mm -hmm. instant that I came out against Trump, I moved categories from ally to enemy because if you're yes. against Trump in many ways, these people see you as just evil. And this codes across multiple issues, but that's what partisan that's right. polarization mm -hmm. does is it closes our hearts entirely to other human beings because mm -hmm. we've just written them off unless they mm -hmm. join us completely. Let me ask you one question before we let you go, David, because I'm genuinely curious about this. There's so many examples of these kind of viral meltdowns, people having a bad moment, whatever it was. I start to wonder about the sort of privacy slash First Amendment implications of this stuff. Do you see a time where this kind of video and this kind of video sharing and the way that it can be just completely and ultimately destructive, do you see any possibility of policy solutions or anything where people have a certain right to their faces or anything like that, where they're like, no, you got to take that video down Twitter. It's going to ruin my life. And I ate two gummies instead of one. <laughs> anything like that? Or is this just how it's going to be? Well, I, the short answer is no. You know, one of the things that I'm always thinking about in when I think about legal reforms is I think... You know, look, I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I always think practical enforcement. In an era where everyone is carrying around a camera that can record in 4K video, when everyone has instant mm -hmm. access to social mm -hmm. media, not just the big ones, you have instant access to all kinds of different platforms. The idea that you can sort of have this freestanding right to display your face is unenforceable. You know, I mean, how are you going to do this? Yeah. Mm. Now, I do think there are ways in which you can limit the commercial use of your face, right? That's a more viable way of limiting the spread of some of this stuff. But if you have a breakdown in public, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a news item, right? I mean, it's, a, it's wow. something that's newsworthy. And so, in fact, the First Amendment will protect your ability to record and broadcast yeah. something. You know, in... When she was escorted off, there was law enforcement meeting her. So this was something where there was a mild breakdown in public order, which is a classic news item. Mm -hmm. It's just that it was unusual. And so that made it viral. And I don't think there's anything we can wow. do about it. I will say, can I have a little glimmer of hope here? Sure, please. <laughs> I do think people are hope. getting to the point where this sort of viral destruction of a private citizen's life, there seems to be less zealousness around actually ending, say, her career versus mm -hmm. the way it used to be. I think that there is maybe less of a chance that you lose your job or lose your career over a bad moment than there used to be. I think people are have a little bit more grace. And can we just commend the other passengers on the plane? This could have been a repeat of the Alabama oh. brawl. I mean, this oh, could have been, been if the person sitting next to her had been any place close mentally to where she was, this would have been a full on attack. So you have to think about the passengers on the plane. Thank God that they were in at whatever state of mind that they chose not to stand up and react or fight. I mean, that yeah. to me is also a glimmer of hope that prayerfully people are not as reactive in cases like that. But again, so many dynamics that we don't know. In any case, David French, great to see you. Nicole Martin, good to see you as well. Uh, and thank you all of you for listening. We will be back next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. 
Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design by Brian Todd. Graphic design by Amy Jones. Social media by Kate Lucky. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.